There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. The war against sex trafficking and the exploitation of children by predators who prey on them for profit or their own gratification may be the most important human rights battle of our time. This week's conversation is with someone on the front lines of that struggle. Stacy Faw is the executive director of Cella Freedom. Stacy grew up in a military family. She lived in the Tampa Bay area in the 1980s when her family was stationed at MacDill Air Force Base. She earned her bachelor's degree and an MBA at the University of South Florida. After a short stint in the corporate world, Stacy entered nonprofit leadership, and she has more than 20 years of experience in that realm. Cella Freedom is a nonprofit anti-human trafficking organization based in Florida and the Midwest with a mission to end sex trafficking and bring freedom to the exploited through four strong programs, advocacy and awareness, prevention, outreach, and residential. Stacy, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Heavy, but undeniably a crucial topic today. So again, yes. thanks for joining us. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you and your team do. Thank you. Let's start with a 30,000 foot view. Are there statistics about how many children are approached by sexual predators and how many children are sexually abused each year? Yeah, unfortunately, um, it, they are pretty sad statistics. It, the estimate now is that one in 10 children are sexually abused by the time they are 18 and one in five are approached by an abuser by the time they're 18. That's staggering. I actually didn't know those statistics and mm -hmm. heart-wrenching. Yep. Yes, yep. it is. My wife and I have three kids. And so you take two of their friends and you're saying that there's one in five that's been approached. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, we have a lot to talk about for parents today. That's for sure. And can you tell us what is the distinction between individual sexual predators and sex trafficking? Well, all traffickers are sex predators. Um, a, traffic, a trafficker will take it just a step further. That's when it gets into where they, they engage their victim into commercial sexual activity, you know, selling them on the market. They often use fraud, force, or coercion. An individual sexual predator is someone who's just really going for their own individual pleasure or addiction that they have. And are there statistics that tell us how prevalent the sex trafficking industry is? And are there numbers to indicate how many sex trafficking victims are under age 18? Yeah, it's it is become an over a $99 billion industry. It's right second to the gun and drug industry. So they're all kind of they vibe up and down for number one, which is sad. Um, it's really hard to get an exact number of sex victims, sex trafficking victims, because a lot of them don't report it, which is one of the hardest parts that we have on our job, especially under 18. But I do know in 2021 and all the federal prosecutions um, cases, 57% of them did involve children. So those are cases that made it to prosecution. I was looking at a, a video uh, on YouTube this morning of Cell of Freedom, and there was a case, I'm not sure when it was, but there was 150 people arrested on this massive, massive thing like that. That's unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. We do. We do a lot of work with law enforcement and um, they're really starting to target the traffickers. And I know that they mentioned there was a new division within the, the Florida the police, the police department, excuse me, in terms of a human trafficking uh, division. You know, how does that work in terms of how long does an investigation like that go on for? Do you bring them leads? Do they come to you and say, hey, we, we may have found something. Can you help us here? We, we have a task force. That it, it actually includes FBI, local law enforcement, and Homeland Security. That's how big of the problem it is. And a lot of people are like, well, why don't you just go after that, that massage parlor? And they did one a few years ago. But what they did was it was about a year in the planning. And they actually um, went into eight massage parlors at the same time. But they also got the owner of the massage parlors. And he was in Hawaii. Because if you close one down, they're just going to open another one down the street. You have to get to the the head of the organizations. And that's kind of what they're trying to do. You know, it's kind of like, you know, arresting the little small time drug pusher versus the, the main person. So the law enforcement is really trying to get to the head of the organizations. 
And we'll talk about more later, but your point about, you know, everyone says just go to that massage parlor because that's where they think the, you know, the CD shady place is, but you can't Google human trafficking without seeing four or five different sting operations that have occurred nationally in the last week or so. I remember the other day I looked and there was one in New Jersey, there was one in San Diego, there was one in Arizona, all within a week. And it's not your massage right. parlor. It's everything but. Yes. Yep. Yep. And for decades, we've heard that rape is a crime that is underreported perhaps by as much as 80%. Is this the same true for child sex abuse and child sex trafficking? Yes, unfortunately, it does really go underreported. Um, as I think we'll talk further, a lot of times it's it's someone that the child knows. So there's a big emotional thing about turning in the abuser. Um, if the stranger, those incidences get reported a little bit, you know, a higher rate. But when it's a family member, a friend, your teacher, your coach, there's an extreme emotional aspect of that. Many people hear the words sex trafficking and say, ah, I live in a safe neighborhood. That doesn't have anything to do with me. I've got the white picket fence and two golden retrievers. Who are the stakeholders in the battle against sex trafficking? Uh, you know, unfortunately, children are the prime targets right now. Children, teenagers are the prime targets. Um, we actually have a survivor that we're working with right now. She was raised in a gated country club community. She was being trafficked by her best friend's father, selling her to the men in the neighborhood. So after I heard that story, I really realized it, there really are no boundaries. Um, you know, typically, yes, youth that are at risk or have a higher potential, but, you know, it really can happen anywhere. Her best friend's father. Mm-hmm. Yes. The best friend, you know, air quotes around best friend. Did they have any idea? She claimed that she didn't know and she probably didn't. Yeah. And the gated country club community. And it mm-hmm. was just the father of all of her friends. Yep. Her yes. Friends. Yeah. That's a sad state. Mm-hmm. And to my earlier yeah. point, that shows how severe and widespread this plague has become. Right. When children and teenagers are the prime targets of predators, is there any profile of a potential sex abuse victim or sex trafficking victim? I wish there was. <laughs> if you look at the police stings and is all ages, all races. It's, it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, it, we just Anyone have to be aware. Have- yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your organization. How did Sela Freedom get its name? So Sela stands for a Hebrew word, which means pause, rest, and restore. And that's kind of what we give our survivors. When they come into our home or into our program, they get that chance to really pause, rest, reflect, and be restored. And what services do you offer and where do you offer them? So we, um, we actually serve survivors all over the nation they come to our safe home. We are located in central Florida um, in the Tampa Bay area. Um, we do have also a arm, a prevention arm up in Chicago. And we have five um, divisions at Sailor Freedom. The first one is our awareness team that goes out and does you know, like this, public awareness, also fundraising and advocacy, really working with the lawmakers to have tougher um, penalties for buyers of sex, because if you can stop the demand, um, and also against traffickers. Our prevention team, which I think we'll talk about later, goes into the schools um, and youth organizations to help educate children against trafficking and what they can do to protect themselves. We have our residential programming, which is short-term and long-term. In those programs, they can stay with us up to two years, and we provide everything, you know, housing, food, clothing, mental health therapy, trauma therapy, um, and we work really hard on their schooling and their careers. And our outreach team, that's the team that goes along with the police, with the, pol- the police stings, um, also goes with the, tra- the victims to court to help testify against their trafficker. And then we, the outreach team also does offer the same programming that, that the residential programs go through, but it's on an outpatient basis. And then we have our consulting team, which is helping to open safe homes all over the U.S. So you mentioned Florida, Chicago, opening homes all over the U.S. You know, how big is your geographic reach? So like our homes mainly are here in central Florida, but our reach, we're actually training some, an organization in Canada right now to open a safe home. Terrific. And unfortunately, it is an international crime. Yes. Yeah. And to that point, are there any other organizations doing all the things that Sailor Freedom does? You know, there's so many great organizations out there right now. Um, 
helping with the trafficking and you know situation and they all kind of offer different things i don't know of anyone that's offering all that we offer but the, but there are some really great organizations out there so you mentioned sale of freedom got its start in florida how'd you make the leap from a state nonprofit to a regional one to a national one so We've, you know, been in the industry for about 11 years and we've made some great strides, also some mistakes. When we first, our first pattern was our first, um, what we wanted to do was open safe homes all over the U.S. and run them ourselves. And we tried that and it really didn't work well. You really need to know that community. You need to have community involvement. You need to know the contacts. So we've kind of backed on that, backed backpedaled on that. But now what we do is we have a consulting program where we will train others. So if you're in Nebraska and you want to open a safe home, you can come to us and we'll train you on how to open a safe home properly. Um, We give them everything from their, you know, employee handbooks to the trauma therapy, anything they need to know, because that's our way to help the mission nationally. Something that I especially like about Sale of Freedom is that you go into the schools and educate kids and that you have age-appropriate content from kindergarten all the way through college. Would you share a little about that material for each age group, please? Yeah, it is really geared towards the um, the ages. In the um, elementary schools, we really talk about, we don't go in there and say, hey, I'm going to teach you about sex trafficking, because obviously they wouldn't know and be way above their head. And um, it's more about um, the difference between a secret and a surprise, And if someone tells you to keep a secret, but it makes you feel icky, what should you do? We talk about the bathing suit and the bathing suit parts. Um, We help them identify three safe adults they can go to if someone makes them feel bad or, you know, they just have a bad feeling when they're around someone. Kind of more touching on those type of things. Um, Then you go into the middle school and the high school. We get more into, you know, we're a little bit more um, upfront about it, about what's happening, sexual abuse. Um, same thing, what to do if you're approached um, and really go in the technology because so much of it now is online. So we have a lot of courses that go deep into that. I think there's a sense by the time our kids get to high school that they're pretty savvy. They don't need us to talk to them about the dangers of sexual predators or sex trafficking. You're just talking about college age kids. Why are they still vulnerable and what should parents be talking to them about? In the college, a lot of the sugar dating that we're seeing, um, also, um, you know, the OnlyFans page where people can have their own website and they think they're innocent, just showing pictures of themselves, but it often progresses. That's um, the OnlyFans right now is a big place where they are targeting, the police are targeting, there's a lot of prostitution happening through that website. So um, and if you look at the, the um, Epstein situation, in the colleges, now they're recruiting a lot of the other students to become recruiters. So it's not like you're being approached by, you know, some strange man at a bar. You're being approached by the student next to you, and they're encouraging you to come to this party. You know, there's a lot of rich people there, and all we got to do is hang out, um, and it just progresses from there. Or, oh, they just want to take pictures. It's a modeling job. Um, so it's those kind of things, especially kids that have been grown up you know, somewhat sheltered, which we all like to shelter our children as much as we can. If we could keep them in a bubble, we would. Um, But they get out there in the real world and they just, they're naive. So that's why we we still talk to the college kids. You were interviewed by your local media about a case involving a school principal who was sending sexually explicit texts to an undercover detective he thought was a teenager. While knowing that such incidents are unfortunately not uncommon, you also said it's happening more and more. Is that because social media makes it so much easier for predators to contact children? Absolutely. You don't need them right next to you anymore. And, uh, you know, I I read a report that was put together by the Department of Education. It's a 10-year-old report. And it says that one in 10 students, by the time they're from kindergarten to senior in high school, will be approached by a school employee for inappropriate sexual relationship. So that's a Department of Education, you know, saying that one in 10 is going to be approached. And I know that data is old and it's much higher, but yeah, the social media just gives, you know, anybody access to your child. It's gone are the days where they're sitting next to you in the living room and you think they're safe. You don't know who they're talking to and what's happening to them. You've told the story of a seven-year-old who was dropped off at a friend's birthday party and lured to a neighbor's house where the man sexually assaulted her. The child was brave, thank God, and had been taught enough that she told her mother what happened. 
The man was arrested, but he'd apparently assaulted many, many other children. Why don't sexual assault victims speak up? Scared. They're fearful. They're ashamed. They, the abusers threaten them and say, if you, if you do this, I'm going to hurt your brother. I'm going to do this to your sister. You know, no one will believe you. You made me do this. Um, it's all emotional. Also, I think some kids are just not taught, you know, what to do. And they're scared to talk to their parents or they're embarrassed about it because it is a shame. It's embarrassing that that happened to you. Um, and they don't feel that they have that comfort with their parents or whoever's raising them to be able to talk about it. So I think it's so important that we open those channels of communication because if this child had not said anything, it could have gone on to hundreds more children. They say, but I read a report that on average, a uh, uh, sexual predator in his lifetime will commit about 120 sexual crimes for different people. So it's a lot. That's sickening. 120? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In your experience, do children ever make up stories about being assaulted? Rarely. I mean, especially you're talking about elementary kids. Most of them don't know, wouldn't even know to come up with that. I always say you're on the side of the child, <laughs> you know, and if your kid says something about this, you might find it hard to believe because you might be saying, you know, uncle so-and-so or cousin so-and-so did this to me and you just can't believe it, but they don't normally make up those things. You've said that sexual predators could be just about anyone, but are there any common denominators, anything that most or all predators have in common? Um, just things I've seen is they, they typically try to be around children. If you think about it, everyone's shocked that it's the coach or the Disney employee, but if you think about it, they're trying to get where children are. So, um, and I, I see it all the time where people are like, I can't believe he was such a nice person or she was such an amazing lady. She always had the kids over. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to find one common denominator. Has there been any research to understand why someone who had something as horrible as sexual abuse happened to them as a child would then do the same thing to child after child? They say that, that someone who's been abused has a trouble of distinguishing between love and abuse. And if it's what they've learned, they just repeat the pattern. Um, luckily, the statistics are that only one third of abusers tend to repeat the cycle. Um, so that is good, but you still got the third that's out there. And it's just, I think it's their, they have holes in themselves emotionally. They have not been gone through counseling. They, you know, have not recovered themselves. So they just repeat the pattern. And certainly not all children who are sexually abused become sexual abusers. Do we know why those that do become abusers? I think again, the not getting treatment, not getting counseling, not dealing with the issue, um, getting to the root cause of, you know, why it happened to them and how they can overcome it. You know, I, I've seen this too. Even when I, I ran a food pantry, you'd see some kids come back and they repeat the pattern of going to the food pantry to get the groceries. And it's just, that's how their family is run. And then you get the others that they're like, no, they go off to college. They become a success. They don't want to have to go to food pantry. So I'm not sure to say what makes one person successful over the other, but I do do think, um, you know, counseling and getting help when something does happen to you can really help your chances of not repeating it. And Stacey, here's a, a tough question that I have difficulty grappling. How do you and your team maintain your mental health and well-being as you do what has to be such a difficult and heartbreaking job? It's tough and, and burnout is high in the industry. We do offer free um, trauma resolution therapy to our staff members that we pay for as an organization because you can get you know residual trauma by reading, hearing the stories, um, going to the court and hearing everything replayed, often videotapes and pictures, and um, it's hard to not be affected by it. We do, I know personally, I try to focus on the successes. We have just so many amazing success stories of survivors that we have helped and have just gone on to have great lives. And that's what encourages me and keeps me going. <laughs> Those are the stories we like to hear more of. Yes, yes. <laughs> You've been in the nonprofit social services world for more than 20 years. Did you recognize all the potential dangers to your kids before you joined Sailor Freedom? No, and I actually feel so guilty about it. So I'm hoping that I can just help other parents now and not make anybody feel guilty for not knowing. I I probably knew more than others just from being in social services. And, and my mom was a psychologist. She would 
talk to us about child sexual abuse and she's talked talk to my children about it because she would counsel a lot of people. She said almost everyone that she counseled was sexually abused. So I probably knew a little bit more, but I had no idea um, the online aspect of it. I, um, again, suffer with my own guilt. Um, luckily, too, I know nothing has happened to my children, but just, just not being aware. Um, again, living in my own bubble. Given all the disturbing stories about predators being coaches, teachers, pastors, or the person next door, how do we trust any adult with our kids? That's a tough question. I say, trust your gut and watch your child. I think, I think the best thing we can do is educate our children about the topic because you can't be there with them all the time. Um, you just can't. Um, and I, that's why I'm so passionate about our prevention training. Um, you know, and again, trusting your gut. If, if your child does not want to go, you see them acting different around when this person comes in the room or you can kind of get a sense. And I think, again, it's parents being aware. I feel like, unfortunately, we're all so busy that sometimes we miss these clues that the kids are trying to tell us and we're going 100 miles an hour and the child's trying to tell us and we're just not catching it. Something as simple as paying more attention to your kid. Mm-hmm. Yes. Would we be going overboard or invading someone's privacy if we ran our own background check on a coach or an adult who works with our kids? I wouldn't think so. Um, you know, you can do background checks anonymously on people online now. I mean, we hope that the schools do it, but, you know, I've heard cases of where schools, they just push a predator from school system to school system. Same with churches. They'll have a pastor that is, you know, been, they found out that he was abusing. And instead of they're worried that the church is going to be in the paper and have bad press. So they push them along to another church. So you can't really trust the organizations um, as much as you should be able to. One myth about sexual abuse of children is that it's always the creepy guy in the white van that pulls up to them and snatches them off the sidewalk. How often is that the case compared to the child being abused by someone they know and trust? Um, it's a, I think it's about 6% is the snatching. Three to six percent um, is around eighty percent of people that they are acquaintance to, you know, like somehow, like a neighbor, something like that. And I think it's about eighteen percent of a very close family member. And in cases where the child is abducted by that man or men, what's the likely outcome? And because you know, do we need to warn children about that possibility too? Yes, you still do. I mean, I. I Absolutely. think you should teach them not to trust strangers, um, you know, what to do if someone's approaching them. We, we had a girl that went through our prevention training. She actually worked at a local grocery store and this man kept coming up to her and coming into her line every time that he was checking out groceries. You know, she had a line of people who would make it to her line and he kept asking her questions, personal questions. And she just was just so scared. She was like, I it felt like I couldn't be rude. I had to answer them. And in the classes we taught her, you don't have to answer those, just empowering them. Um, and then she also went and talked to her manager about the man. So just letting them know that, you know, if someone's making you feel uncomfortable, you have the power, even though they're an adult and we all teach respect of adults, you have the power to, to not answer those questions. And, you know, so I, I think you, you do have to train them about, teach them about strangers as well. You've actually talked to the man who was an online predator, haven't you? You know, I didn't talk to him. I I observed his interview. He it was recorded. Got it. So yeah, yes. And, yeah. and what did you learn? Uh, something alarming. One of the first things he asked his potential victim is, "Do your parents get on your phone or your computer?" And if they say yes, he clicks off and goes on to the next child. That's insane. Yeah. Do, do predators exploit the same vulnerabilities that they had as a child, or are they very good at just figuring out what a child is missing in their life and trying to fill that void? Both. Um, I think some kids you can just sense right away that they're going to be a little more vulnerable, that they're a little bit more shy. They're not going to stand up for themselves, but they do use a, you know, a process called grooming where they really get to know the child and they befriend them. Um, they get to know like, oh, you know, is your mom not listening to you or did you have a bad day at school? And they become their friend and they start to gain that child's trust. And that's how those relationships start. And how can we make our kids or grandkids predator proof, if at all? Back to the education. 
teaching them what is appropriate, what is not, what can they do that they they are empowered and they have the right to tell an adult no um, and who they should speak to um, and keeping those lines of communication open. And, and if they if something does happen to them to remain calm and have a an open conversation, I think so many kids are just scared their parents are going to freak out and, you know, all of that. But um, teaching them what to do if they're approached is probably the number one thing. And what are the warning signs that a child is especially vulnerable to potential abuse and warning signs that someone may be attempting to abuse a child? You may see um, changes in your child, like if there's if they are being abused, such as they might become withdrawn, they might become more angry, they might not want to go to somebody's house that you know you normally go to. Um, there can be like physical signs too that a child's been abused. Um, yeah, so just really again being more aware. As a parent, I know my kids aren't happy about parents looking at their cell phone, and especially as they get older. How do you balance respect for their privacy or independence with the need to keep them safe? This is a tough one. <laughs> you know, I, I think just being on there at some point and letting them know that you're going to check their phone will right away stop them from doing certain things. Um, not just the, um, they can get in trouble just with pictures of themselves, you know, nowadays, not even as far as, as the trafficking, but I, you know, I, Unfortunately, I feel some parents in, in America are, don't want to be parents anymore. They just want to be their child's friends. And you're the only parent they have. And they have a lot of friends. It's kind of my thought. And I, I do agree with respecting boundaries. But in today's age, with everything that's going on, um, I think safety is a little more important of an issue. And I think just the fact of going on their phone and checking or having those apps that you can check we'll just kind of make them think twice about doing certain things on their phone. Some of the sex trafficking survivors who go through your program become mentors and speakers. How many of them want to share those experiences and provide support for others? And how many really want to put that past behind them? I say it's about half. Some of them, it's just too triggering. They just can't, you know, go back to the home and work there. They can't speak about it. Um, and others are the opposite. They become so passionate and become some of our best employees where they want to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else. They want to show that person in jail right now or on the street that they can turn their life around. As there's been more recognition of the sex trafficking crisis, more and more people or groups have been opening homes for survivors. Is there a right way and a wrong way to help sex trafficking survivors? Yes. And this is something, unfortunately, we're seeing. We'll see people that have a really good heart and they just want to get a house and get the people off the street. And they have no idea what they're dealing with. Um, the trauma um, that these victims have gone through is extremely intense. And I wouldn't recommend anybody starting a program without help of professionals, of psychiatrists and psychologists, um, mental health counselors. Because if you don't get to the root problem and you don't heal those hurts, you know, properly, you're just, it's just going to be a revolving door. We've seen situations where they just almost re-traumatize the victims and it ends up traumatizing the staff and the volunteers. So that's why we're so passionate about our consulting program so that we can teach people a, a model that ha is working. What you and your colleagues have done and what other nonprofits are doing is amazing and so commendable, but it seems like solving this crisis is also going to take more resources from cities, states, and the federal government both on the law enforcement side and the human services side. What would you like to see from them in terms of funding, policies, and programming? I'd like to see um, tough, tougher penalties for traffickers, which they are pushing for, and also for buyers of sex. If you stop demand, well, then you start, you know, it's all money and greed, a lot of it. Um, so they are working towards that. Um, I know the state of Florida has mandated that every child go through 45 minutes of sex trafficking prevention education. I think it should be, which I commend. I think that's great. I think it should be more. And I think every child in school should be, have to go through the education. And I acknowledge at the start that this was a heavy conversation about a difficult topic, but I know because of people like you, there are glimmers of hope. Would you share with us a story or two that have touched your heart and kept you fighting this good fight? Yeah. Oh gosh, we have plenty. <laughs> we have one girl, um, she was sexually abused by her father 
growing up. And then he started selling her to his friends because of his drug problem. You know, and you, you hear of stories like that and you think, how, how do you overcome that? I mean, that's just, you know, your dad is supposed to be the person that protects you and he, he's, you know, using you so he can get high again. But she has just overcome the whole situation. She went through our program. She um, went through all the therapy. She is now on staff. And again, one of our more passionate employees just helping people. Um, she's now has been married and has two young boys herself bought her first home, um, got her AA degree. And when she was with us, she had to work on her GED. So just seeing, you know, giving her the chance to have the life that she dreamed of, you know, sometimes we can't choose who our parents are or the situation we're born into, but seeing how much they overcome and they use their pain. um, She even says her pain is now her passion. So using that pain that she went through is now become her life's purpose. Um, we have others that we have another graduate and she's gone on and she didn't, she is a volunteer, but she's not on staff, but she um, during the program got her nail license degree, nail license certificate. And she is so busy that you can't get into her for three weeks. So, you know, and then she comes in and um, volunteers with the girls. We have another girl working on her accounting degree. So it's just, you know, these and we have a, a man who is also working on his college degree and he has gotten married and has a boy and they got their their apartment now it's just giving them that chance to have that life that they really wanted you know no one grows up thinking i want to have sex for money you know i just you know the life they certainly deserve yes yep they just need a chance yes and this is perhaps the biggest question of the day for you How can people learn more about Sailor Freedom and support your efforts? Um, They go to our website, sailorfreedom.com. I highly encourage you to go there and watch all of our free trainings. We have trainings. You can educate yourself. I think the more people are educated about the topic, the more we can all come together and end it. Um, Free trainings for youth. We can come to the schools and um, work with them, with the youth directly. And also any financial donations. If, if it's the least you could do is give a small donation to help us keep going, that would be greatly appreciated. You know, all nonprofits always need funding. Stacey Ifa, thank you so much for being with us today. And again, thank, thank you. you for all the work that you do and your team. Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. I'm Chris Meek, and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. We were speaking with Stacy Efall, the executive director at Sea Freedom, the first half of the show. And now I'd like to welcome someone who is no stranger to Next Steps Forward, 
Andy Berger. Andy's a human trafficking survivor, advocate, and quite frankly, an all-around badass. Uh, someone I'm proud to call a friend, um, an ally, and, and an activist. Uh, so with that, Andy, welcome back. Well, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be back with you, too. I'm, uh, I'm going to have to take that intro and use it more often. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe put it on your, your LinkedIn profile, and you know, badass advocate, all that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for some of those women's groups out there that I talk to. <laughs> no question. It's very appropriate. That's awesome. Well, so, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here because you are doing such a great job. You are one of my media heroes and heroes all around because you get this message out there. It's so important to talk about the tough issues, but it's also important to bring the hope. Andy, thank you for that. And, you know, can you believe that you first appeared on a show in January 2021? It's no, I can't. two years. Wow. And, Time flies. And so I really encourage our listeners to go back and look at that show, January 26, 2021. Uh, you know, Andy, you were the first guest I had on regarding human trafficking. And I'm going to be honest, as I told you dozens of times, it's something I never thought about. I never paid attention to. And your story just got to me. It was extremely eye-opening, heart-wrenching, you know, punch in the gut, shocking. And because of you and because of that, you've made me an anti-human trafficking activist. And so I want to thank you for, for really shedding light on a very, very important topic, which we're going to dive into here. You know, and maybe first, you know, for listeners who didn't see that show, tell us a little bit about your story. Okay, sure. I would love to. And thank you for that. Um, so for those who may not know my story from ages six months to 17 years old, I was trafficked by immediate and some extended family members, you know, back in a time where there wasn't a term for such a thing in the early 60s and 70s. So at that time, it, things were so bad, the physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, you know, ba literally begging God to let me die, you know, more nights than I can remember. Um, at the age of five, I thought, I'll just take my own life. I'll jump in front of a car and then no one can ever touch me or hurt me again. And there just weren't any places to go to, Chris. And, and, and again, nobody talked about even child abuse or anything that went on in the home. You know, everybody kept that under wraps, under the carpet. And that's how a lot of generational trafficking happens. So, but, you know, as you've heard me say before, in that moment, as I sat on the curb waiting for a car to be coming by to jump in front of, you know, God interceded. And I heard this voice in my heart that said, uh, this is not the plan I have for you. Suicide is not the answer. And so my little five-year-old self went up to the garage and I just said to nobody in particular, if you keep me alive, I'll do whatever you call me to do. And not really fully knowing that there would still be a lot of pain and, and, and things. Uh, but the, my uh, birth mother, the last time she tried to take my life, I was 17. So, you know, one of the reasons I speak, as you said, is because if somebody, if anyone who knew, and there were people who knew things were going on in that house, had said something my life would have been maybe less tragic. It would have been better. And you can't go backwards. So you have to take today. And as you talk about, you move forward. You know, you take the next step forward and hopefully help somebody else so they don't have to suffer. Well, you mentioned people not talking about it or being taboo. As I mentioned, it's something that I just you know, didn't pay any attention to. I think a lot of folks just think it's, you know, some stranger in a white van with no windows offering candy to little oh. kids. But it can be the man and the woman next door could be somebody with a white picket fence and two golden retrievers and the European sports cars and all of that. And you can't Google human trafficking now without seeing a dozen stories nationally and then two dozen stories internationally in terms of what's going on, things that have been put in place. Um, you know, we always think about something like just the Super Bowl or, or something like that is where it happens, but it happens everywhere. Maybe you can share a little bit in terms of like some signs or things people could look for. Yeah, absolutely. And it does happen in every neighborhood. One of the things that is dangerous is adhering to the myth that, oh, that doesn't happen in my neighborhood. I know everybody. Well, you don't really know everybody because you're not living in their bedrooms. You're not, you know, there every 24 hours a day. But uh, one of the first things I, I encourage people to do is, you know, if you see something odd or strange, first of all, here's a resource. Go to voicesagainsttrafficking.com. There are helplines and hotlines listed that you can put in your phone today. Right now, today, there's suicide helpline, there's anti-trafficking helpline, child abuse helpline. 
then when you do see something, I encourage people, look at the relationship, say, between an older man and maybe a younger girl that he has with her, which is a common example. How is she dressed? How is she? What's her body language like? Is she giving eye contact? Does it look like they belong together? Sometimes the most subtle things are the things that tip off that there is an issue because handlers want to keep their product in control. They want to keep them from talking to anyone other than, you know, maybe yes, ma'am or something. But really, I was controlled to the point where I couldn't even speak unless I was given the eye that I could. And if I went too far, I paid a price for that. And so that's one of the things. Uh, one example, uh, one of our members uh, was traveling and she noticed a lady with two, two girls who looked young, but they were really dressed up in expensive clothing. Their hair was uh, a salon style hairdo. They had $100 nail jobs and it just looked out of place. And so one of the girls had to go to the restroom and the handler, as we know now, and the other girl went with her. And, you know, on an airplane, there's not a lot of room. But the handler was making sure that that girl couldn't speak to anyone. She she couldn't talk, you know, give any signals, leave any notes. And that's how it was. And so our member noticed and talked to Tia or talked to the flight attendant who is trained then to let TSA know there's a potential problem. And as it turned out, that woman was trying to traffic those two girls from the U.S. out of the country. You know, you talk about looking for older men with younger women is, you know, I'll say the, you know, the age old story, if you will. We had a guest on a few months ago where she had mentioned how one of her friends, when she was in high school, her friend's father trafficked this girl yeah. and, and started with the neighborhood dads and then went from there. And then Absolutely. It, it's insane. And I, I'm glad you mentioned airlines because I've seen several articles recently, both for airlines and uh, truck drivers. They have mm -hmm. programs in place in terms of things to look for and, and to spot. And so, you know, the truck driving thing made complete sense to me, but then I never thought about an airplane leaving the country or going from city to city. Uh, right. Or a bus or a train, any kind of transportation. One of the other things that uh, we noticed here in Oregon, at least I did when I had our shelter going, uh, was that uh, the homeless shelters are a great place for a predator to spend the night with his human product, with his victims because no one's really going to notice them they'll just blend in they'll just think you know they they're having a rough time there's all kinds of stories so um and if somebody does get suspicious they have a quick getaway and so and and u-haul tracks moving look at all the different things is somebody hanging out in the parking lot of your of your kid's school or your church or or the sporting event you know we we send our kids everywhere chris nowadays and do we really know the coaches and the staff that are with them? Are they going to be supervised? And more importantly, have background checks been done? As a little league coach, I can assure you that, that I had mine done this year. <laughs> you know, but Andy, I'm always amazed at you and your story and knowing your story as well as I do, how great of a person you are, You know how you've come out the other side of all that trauma and heartache. Maybe share with the listeners some of the things somebody goes through as a survivor and what's their life after the fact. Absolutely. And, and thank you. Uh, you know, 60 years later, <laughs> it seems hard to believe that that was part of my life. But when I tell people is, you know, yes, faith, yes, determination, making a choice every day, never to be like those people and making a choice to help somebody else. But here's what it's like. A lot of people, oh, well, they rescued them. Everything's going to be okay. You know, they're going to have food, they're going to have shelter. But what we miss out on a lot, Chris, is the mental health. And I know you focus a lot on that in your shows that that survivor is not like anyone else in your neighborhood, most likely. They need to be listened to, not judged, not talked to, but they need to have people that will be with them in their journey to reintegrate. They feel shame. They feel guilt. I always had a game face, man. I Nobody ever knew anything about my background. Um, anyway, so I, I went through school. That was my way of getting affirmation, but no one ever got close enough to me. And even in business, I made sure that no one got to know me too well because I didn't ever want them to know that the people that were supposed to love me you know, didn't. And so I carried that with me my whole life. I still struggle through PTSD. I just started talking about that a couple of years ago. Um, there was a time where it's like, I, I don't even know who I am right now. I miss me, even though I've done all the therapy and I have a great life. I have a wonderful husband, a daughter we adopted out of one of the, you know, the kids that we rescued. 
and everything is great. It really is. But there are times where victims, they don't even understand why they feel what they feel. So having a greater compassion and a lot less finger wagging platitudes and, you know, telling him, oh, just you'll get through this. It's very difficult. My last and primary predator didn't die until she was 91 years old. And that was just a few years ago. And so that was the moment where I knew for sure that person could never show up in my life. But up until then, I didn't live in fear of it. I just knew that it was always possible. Imagine having that hammer over your head uh, for you know six decades. And then the other part is relationships. If it hasn't been modeled for you, uh, then how do you learn how to have a, a, a genuine relationship, a genuine love? I struggled for a lot of years with what intimacy meant, with what sh- being vulnerable meant, if it was okay, you know, and, and thankfully, you know, last 23 years, you know, Ed's been a great guy and, and he's just the two basic things he told me applied to the kids. I don't understand everything that happened to you right now, but I'll promise you this. I'll never leave you and I will always listen. And that's what survivors need. People that will go the distance with them, no matter how fast or slow it takes. Now, you know, we don't want to wallow in our in our past, but it doesn't have to define today. So when we rescued kids, we would say, this is the day you get to choose. You own every decision you make from here on out, but you also have to own the consequences for every decision. But we will be with be there for you and with you through either, right? Um, so if we have those conversations, I think that's important. And part of it too, Chris, as you know, is having having conversations with your children. You're a dad. You know, you need to let them know, not you personally, but, you know, as a parent, parents need to let their kids know we're not trying to police you. We're trying to protect you because things are different right now. And let's have a family conversation, age appropriate conversation about what can happen, you know, and that has to involve trafficking, sexual assault, what kind of parties you go to, you know, does your family have a code word? So let's say your son or daughter texts you and that word is only known by immediate family members. You will know to drop everything and go get your kid, right? But a lot of families don't even do that much. So what we want to do is make it a conversation, whether you're a single parent, a grandparent, a foster parent, a two parent family, whatever that family unit looks like, we want you safe. And that's part of what Voices really um, focuses on doing is getting it out there for prevention. You talk about the healing process. I can't imagine how to even begin that. I can't comprehend. And thankfully, I don't have to. What is sort of like step one, step two on that journey? Mm-hmm. One is the choice to want to heal because it's a hard, it's a hard path. I spent three years in weekly counseling and I spent two months voluntarily in a dissociative disorder unit of a hospital, which uh, dissociative disorder in layman's terms or Andy's terms is basically you separate your emotions from your, your mental. So I lived in my head all the time. I didn't emote. I would have to watch a sad movie to actually cry you know, to, to do that for myself. Um, so basically I do believe in counseling. I believe you have to vet counselors just like you would vet a doctor or any, any, anyone else that's a professional and make sure that they do have experience with um, violations, sexual violations, sexual in, you know, intimacy issues, as well as the overall healing process. So the counseling and then, of course, making better choices of who I hung out with and what I did, that was also part of it. You know, it, it's just still shocking to me. Everything you've gone through, what other survivors have gone through, and I want to highlight the word survivor, not victim, but survivor, mm-hmm. because you are a survivor. These men and women are survivors. You know, it, it's just shocking. What can we do to help them? I mean, we've talked about making a movement on this. You know, you've highlighted yes. several times before that this is the number one illegal business globally. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just going to apologize right now because it's very emotional for me, you know, and um, (laughs) I don't know why today, but it's just hugely emotional because I just worked with a victim here locally and both of her, I call them babies, but they were, you know, three and five years old were violated by the baby daddy and um, almost sold. 
and we interceded and it just brings to light that this happens every day. So what we can do, great question. First of all, I encourage everyone, go to voicesagainsttrafficking.com. Get those hotlines and helplines in your phone. Look at the information. We also have a forum coming up June 28th, which you've been part of uh, several times. And so um, that's a free Facebook, YouTube forum where we bring uh, several speakers, several voices from around the world. um, And and we share information and ideas and stories and help uh, on that forum. So that will be coming out. Look at our website for the date and you can join just by clicking. We also have books. We have uh, Fragile Thread of Hope, which is partly my story and partly that of four of the kids that we rescued. Uh, Not all were trafficked, but they were all on the street for very, very um, serious reasons. Uh, Running from something that's worse than going to the street is pretty bad. They're not the rebellious kids. These are the ones that have to get out or they're going to die or they're going to kill themselves to get out of the situation. And so we have books available. And then also uh, we brought out Voices of Courage, which you've been a big part of, a big sponsor and a contributor, contributing writing, uh, writer for. Uh, that's actually out now digitally over uh, airline and I, sub- I subscribe and different subscription services, as well as in print and retailers like Magazine Cafe in New York City. In fact, we're going to have a big launch on July 6th or rather July 12th in New York City at Magazine Cafe to really put voices of courage out there. The everyday heroes like you and other people we know that are doing the good things. Because, Chris, don't you think right now people need to be encouraged? They need to think that I'm an everyday person. What can I do? We have the magazine for them. And again, where are those websites? VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com and then VoicesOfCourage.media for the magazine and information on that. And of course, we are a 501c3. So every time someone buys a book or helps us out financially, that helps us get the work done. We're, We're raising money now to get this mother and those two children settled in a safe place. So we appreciate every dollar. No, I appreciate the work that you do. Andy, we have just a few minutes left. For those listeners out there who may think something is suspicious or for those who may be survivors, what words of of hope and courage, encouragement do you have for them? Well, first of all, for things that are suspicious, always go to local law enforcement, find out what you can report or what they, what protocols they may have in place. And if they don't, then you go up the chain. Even if you have to call the numbers, uh, call uh, national hotlines, please do that. Uh, I, I, it would have changed my life if somebody had, but I'm good now. So it's okay. But somebody else might not be, um, for the victims out there, first of all, you're not alone. And secondly, most importantly, it was not your fault. Okay. What has happened to you is a real event and everything you feel is absolutely valid. The, the point is to get help now so that you can change your future so that you can choose how to live your life and with a support system. So please contact Chris, contact me at voicesagainsttrafficking.com if you need resources or help uh, in, in direction, because it is possible to take those next steps forward and create a new normal. I've been doing that for multiple decades and it's a good thing to do. It's hard, but we will be there with you. Create a new normal. I love that. Mm-hmm. Andy Berger, as always, it's been a pleasure and honor to have you with us today. Oh, thank you, Chris. Ditto. <laughs> I'm Chris Meek. We're out of time. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.